Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Mic check. I'm speaking into the mic. Mic, mic, mic. Check, check, check. Hello. Hello. Hi, little sis. Hi, big brother. How are you doing? And then I just spent an hour on the phone with Richard Glossop's legal team and PR team. Oh, my God. It's an absolute fucking abomination. And he was a guy in Oklahoma, never was in trouble as a kid, was managing a motel in a seedy part of town and engaged to this woman who had to be the prettiest girl in town. I mean, she was gorgeous. And everything was fine until they hired this young drifter kid to do maintenance at the hotel. And he ended up murdering the owner of the hotel to get money for meth. Oh, man. And, you know, in order to get out of a death penalty himself, he told the cops that Richard gave him money to do it. (gasps) And it's really awful. He's been in the execution chamber three times, strapped down to the gurney twice and another time in there. And each time at the last minute, it was stopped because... One time, they brought the wrong drug. They brought food preservative. Oh, my God. And they were going to execute him anyway. And the governor stopped that one. And, you know, they have this barbaric ritual on death row in Oklahoma. For 35 days, you're kept in a cell with nothing. You're in the death cell with nothing. The lights are on 24 hours a day. You're watched by a guard 24 hours a day. And you have nothing in there. I think they'll give you a Bible if you want one. But now you have none of your possessions. Jeez. And you're just fucking stuck there. So he's been through this. Three times. I don't think anyone has ever had that experience. Wow. Ever, right? This poor guy. So are you able to help him out in any way at this point? His appeals are totally exhausted. There are no legal remedies whatsoever. So the only hope we have is clemency from the governor. I don't think it's impossible. In Texas, it would be. In Florida, it would be. In Oklahoma, I don't think it is. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And while we're working hard preparing for season two, we've got another fascinating bonus episode of Of Labyrinths. That was our friend Jason Flom, one of the founding board members of The Innocence Project. You may remember him making a small appearance in episode three of our first season about felon-turned-politician Tara Simmons. When we chat with Jason, we're usually firmly in the world of criminal justice. But Jason leads a double life. He's also the founder and CEO of Lava Records, and that means he's a very busy guy. Well, let me just send one text so I'm not thinking about it. Yep. And then I'm going to be all yours. Let's see. Okay. So, I'm ready when you are. Yay. All right. Well, we're ready when you are because you're the man with the stories. I mean, you've had a crazy life, I've been told. Oh, sorry. I got a call coming in. (laughs) Did we say busy? We meant comically busy. Yes, I've had a crazy life. When I start my speeches, which I speak in public whenever anyone will actually listen to me. (laughs) And I often open by saying this is a story of my crazy journey from wannabe Jimi Hendrix to chairman and CEO of three of the biggest record companies in the world, but more importantly, from being a drug-addicted college dropout to a pioneer in criminal justice reform. 
And so that usually gets people's attention because it is a very strange double life that I lead. And as a result of it, it gives me a little bit of an edge in trying to help move the needle because people don't see it coming as easily as it would be if I was a full-time advocate or a defense lawyer. Jason's kids threw him a Zoom birthday party a few weeks ago, and they put together a trivia game about Jason. What was the first band he signed? Whose life did he save? Where did he meet Paul McCartney? When did he go to rehab? And we realized we didn't know much at all about record exec Jason Flom. Actually, we were so thrilled to be invited to your birthday, not just because your kids thought of us, but also that we got to know so much more about you (laughs) through that game. That shit was, in fact, hilarious. So we got Jason on the phone to take us on a wild ride through the music world. If you had to sort of describe the bad years, the drug addicted years, if we start at the bottom here. He went dark. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I was thinking just fun parties. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he brought it up. <laughs> Is there something that stands out to you, a memory or a time or a particular incident? Particularly the one that maybe is labyrinthine. Like, were you ever kidnapped? (laughs) Oh, I was kidnapped by my own personal demons. Um, You know, from the time I was 15, I was, I don't want to say the smartest, but I was the only kid that got a perfect score on the first day of the top math class in eighth grade. And I was in the class with kids who turned out to be legitimately going to NASA or Harvard Medical School. But that was the year I discovered drugs and gambling. (laughs) <laughs> and so um, it was a steady decline from there. Well, not steady, but precipitous. I had wanted to be on the sports teams. I didn't make the sports teams because I'm slow. I have fast hands and slow feet, but that doesn't work in team sports. So I picked up a guitar instead. And guitar and pot went well together and beer. And, you know, in those days, it was a very different time. You were gambling at 15, yeah, 16? I was about to say, how does one stumble upon gambling at 15? My dad grew up as poor as you can be, always on the edge of homelessness. And when he started making money, when I was growing up, he invested in a couple of racehorses. He owned like an eighth of the horse or this or whatever it was. And he used to take my brother and I to the track. And he would let us bet like $2 on a horse. And huh. he took me to a casino in the Dominican Republic when I was 13. Whoa. And back then, they didn't care if you were four years old. As long as you had American dollars, they were happy to see you. Wow. And so he didn't bet very much money, but he was playing craps. And he gave me $20. And I went and lost it at blackjack. I had no idea how to play blackjack. <laughs> so I lost it very quickly. Well. But I, then he gave me another 20 I lost that. And I went back to him and he said, here's another 20 But if you lose this, that's it. And if you win, you got to give me back the $60. Now, granted, this was a long time ago, so $60 was $60. And I went to the roulette table, and for some reason, I just started winning. And um, I remember that was up to $270 in front of me. Wow. And I lost back a little bit and walked away because I wasn't a degenerate gambler yet. And I gave my dad his investment back, and I still had 150 I think that night was the closest my mom ever came to killing my father. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the die was cast. I mean, I have an addictive personality. And, and then I started cutting school multiple days a week, going to the racetrack. And then I started betting on sports. And while Jason was gambling and getting deeper into drugs, he was given an opportunity that would change his life. At 18, I was graced with the opportunity, I mean that, to work at Atlantic Records, which was, I had a one-year trainee program. I'd taken a year off between high school and college. And I'll make no bones about it. I mean, I was very lucky. My dad knew somebody who knew somebody who got me an interview. 
So they gave me a staple gun and some double-sided tape and a bunch of Led Zeppelin posters and other posters. And I ran around to record stores, putting up posters in record stores. That was my job. I was assistant trainee field merchandise. I was making $4 an hour and they were giving me free records. And Atlantic was the greatest company in the world as far as I was concerned. It was around the same time that I realized I was never going to make it as a rock star because my guitar playing just wasn't good enough. So my dad had told my brother and I, by way of career advice, he had told us, do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place because that's the only definition of success that really matters. And so that always stuck with me. And it occurred to me that if I could get a job helping other people become rock stars, maybe I could be the best at that. And then I could sort of live out my rock star dreams vicariously. So <laughs> how was I to get a job in the A&R department, the coveted job in the A&R department? Well, I decided that my strategy would be there was a music industry trade publication back then called Album Network. Okay. And Album Network was basically the Bible of rock radio. And At the back of the magazine, they published a playlist of all 190 rock stations in America at that time. And each playlist was about a couple inches high and had about 40 records listed. My eyes were really good back then. (laughs) So I thought, if I study these lists every week, maybe I'll find a song or band that's being played that isn't already signed. And that might be a good indication that maybe they should be signed because at least they're on the radio. Right. And then I would call these stations and pretend I was somebody important and try to get the program director or music director on the phone. And half the time they would answer the phone, half the time they wouldn't. And then another half the time they would say, oh, that they're already signed to RCA or whatever. And I'd move on with my life. Well, this particular day, there was a radio station in Long Island called WBAB. So I called up and I got the program director's name was Bob Buckman. I got him on the phone and I said to him, for some reason, I said to him, well, if you were me, who would you sign? which was a preposterous thing to say because I could barely sign my name at that point in time, right? (laughs) But he says, let me tell you about Zebra. So I go, what's Zebra? He goes, Zebra's the number one most requested band at the radio station. I go, you mean number one most requested local band, right? And he goes, listen, schmuck. He goes, let me read you something, right? Back in those days, you know, you couldn't just go online and pull up your favorite song. I mean, the farthest thing from it. Right. You couldn't. There's no Google. Yeah, there was no Google. There was no... best thing you could do is try to hit record when the song you like came on and try to record it on a cassette. I mean, it was pretty primitive. So what people would do is call the station and say, hey, can you play that again? So they would keep track of these requests. And so he gets this log book out and he says, in the last quarter of the year, 6.8% of all the requests we got were for Zebra. And I remember second, third, and fourth was like ACDC, Ozzy, and Zeppelin in whatever order. And I was like, right. oh my God, this is it. This is my big break. How do I get this music, right? So he says, hold on, I'm gonna call the guys on the other phone. So he calls them on the other phone. They lived in New Orleans and they were very popular. They sell at all the clubs and they were number one in the station, but they had given up on getting a record deal. No one's offering a record deal. So the next day I get to my desk and there's a FedEx package with an album in it. And it's basically glowing. I mean, FedEx was new back then. I didn't know from FedEx. Like it was like an exciting thing to get a FedEx, you know? So, but I had nowhere to play this album. I was like, what do I do now? It's in my desk. So I go to one of the A&R guys' offices. I figure this guy knows. And I said, you're about to hear the next big thing. He says, really? Did you listen to what I go? No, but I'm telling you, this is the next big thing. <laughs> so he puts it on and he goes on to give me chapter and verse about why it's no good and it's not worth the time of day and whatever else. And I go back to my desk, crestfallen, right? Yeah. And, I was, I, and I still remember I'm dialing, the singer's name was Randy Jackson. And 
I'm calling Randy, and I'm halfway through dialing, and there was a woman sitting in front of me. She was an assistant in the promotion department. Her name was Mary. I said, Mary, how does this make any sense? She goes, what? I go, I'm, I'm calling this guy. He's number one on the station. The band's selling out clubs everywhere, and I'm calling to tell him he's no good. And she goes, doesn't make any sense to me either. I was like, okay. So I called Randy, and I said, listen, Randy, the guy I played for said it's no good, but I'm going to give it to the president of Atlantic and see what he thinks. Ooh, yeah. Uh-oh, that's a risky move. You're going over the chain of command. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know from chains of command. I just knew I was excited. I was just a stoned, like, 19-year-old kid at this point with a lot of hair. And I didn't know the president of Atlantic, except I knew I should stay out of his way if he was walking down the hallway and I was going the other way with a roll of posters in my hands and smelling like weed like I usually did. So... <laughs> I made a cassette from the album. I wrote a little note about it and I wrapped it up in the cassette and the thing. And I gave it to the president of Atlantic's assistant. She put it on her desk where there was a wall of cassettes that he was never going to listen to. <laughs> you know, because there's just a wall of them, right? Everybody's trying to get his attention. But that was the best I could think of. So as Faye would have it, one night, he's leaving the office to drive home to Long Island where he lives. He grabs a few things off her desk to listen to on the drive home. And mine was one of them. And so he's listening to Zebra in his car. The song was called Who's Behind the Door. And he decides he doesn't like it, so he pops it out and is playing on the fucking radio. Oh, dang. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just got a little chill thinking about it, right? But it was just kismet, right? Just serendipity and synchronicity, whatever you want. He pops it out, and there's playing on the radio. So now, of course, he does a double take. And at the end of the song, the DJ says, that's the most requested song in the history of WBAB, Zebra, who's behind the door. So the next day, he comes in, and he goes, this is genius. <laughs> was like, well, 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 yeah, boss, what? Yeah, I know that. <laughs> he says, fly them up here. I want to meet these guys. And after a lot of different other craziness happened, we ended up releasing the album. And it was amazing because these kids had been waiting for years for their favorite band to put out an album. Wow. It was like madness in the stores on a Monday when the record came out. Kids all cut school and they were buying multiple copies. They were ripping them out of the boxes before they could even put the stamp on. Records were three sixty nine back then. Wow. And so all of a sudden, everyone was looking at me like I knew what I was doing. And they gave me a little office and they gave me a job doing A&R. And that's how it all started. Wow. That is Awesome. And the music industry was so much fun back then. It was the wild, wild west. There were crazy characters. I mean, I was just really lucky to be around for that era. Listen, you know, Angus Young gave me a guitar lesson in my office. I was 18 years old. I mean, like, it's just, it was so nuts. You know, I'm of the belief that the 60s and 70s was a cultural renaissance period in America that will never be duplicated. Not just America, but in the world. When I was a kid, you could go to Madison Square Garden at least once a week and see a real live genius. Like an actual genius would be on stage at Madison Square Garden all the time. It was like, it was nothing. It was Sly and the Family Stone. It was Pink Floyd. It was Led Zeppelin. It was Queen. Totally. It was Aerosmith. It was the Stones. It was Bob Dylan. It was Stevie Wonder. And I'm just scratching the surface here, as you know. It's not like that anymore, right? Led Zeppelin at the Garden? It cannot be replicated. The whole garden became a glowing orb of everything. And of course, it was all felt very, you know, a little edgy and dangerous. And and that's not a thing anymore. I mean, it's still great. But anyway, I'm sounding like an old guy. But perhaps the record biz was too much fun. So my 
typical night after I started making some money and then I started betting more money and doing more drugs and then got into harder drugs and my night would be the dealer would show up at the office he wouldn't come upstairs he would drive around in circles and you had to there were no cell phones back then right so I had to go from my office which was in Rockefeller Center downstairs I would run back and forth trying to catch him I could have stayed in one place but I don't know it was quite maniacal the whole situation and then I would go home and sit there and get high and, and bet on all these games and just sit there with the shades down, like peeking out, trying to see if anyone was coming in, which was pretty ridiculous since I was on the 27th floor and I didn't even have a terrace. But I was sure that someone was going to either scale the building or rappel down from the roof. The paranoia was crazy back then. So by the time I went to rehab, it was a really necessary trip. Let's just say that. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinths Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Was there anything in particular that prompted you to go into rehab? What was that moment like? My boss, who was an early proponent of rehabs, he was a guy named Doug Morris, who was the president of Atlantic Records. He could be a scary guy, too. One day he brought me in his office and he just yelled at me and he's like, you're a fucking drug addict and this and that. And like, you should go to rehab. And I was like, well, I don't know who he's talking to. Like, that's ridiculous. But then another day he tried a different approach and he said, you know, you were so valuable to the company and now you're really just sort of, and he could have and should have fired me because I was a mess. But he said, look, you're going to go to this place for a month and we'll pay you while you're there. Wow. I'm thinking to myself, hmm, if I could pay you, I think I was making $500 a week. I could bet that. <laughs> I could pay some bookie bets and like, I can't spend yeah. them. And it started to make sense to me. So, yeah. And it's funny because my other boss was a guy named Tunj Aram. He was a Turkish guy who ran the AR department. And I never forget, he had a heavy accent and he calls me down to his office and he had been to rehab. He was even way worse off than I was. The music business was, it was a time of excess for sure. And he calls me down to his office. I go, what's going on? He goes, listen, mother. He always he cursed like crazy. He goes, motherfucker. He goes, I got to tell you what you're going to do in that place, motherfucker. What you're going to bring with you when you go there, cocksucker, this and that shit. I tell you right now, motherfucker, I got to tell you what you're going to do in the fucking plane when you <laughs> go to that fucking place. And I'm like, what, what am I going to do in the plane? He goes, get as drunk as you can, motherfucker, because you ain't never going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so my last three beers were at LaGuardia Airport like at 11 in the morning on my way to Minnesota to go to Hazelden. Rehab itself was an amazing experience. I mean, let me tell you, because you want to hear a crazy story. Yeah, I want to hear about rehab. Oh, my God, it was amazing. I mean, rehab, I mean, I call it summer camp for assholes. <laughs> Hazelden is such a beautiful place. It's on a whole bunch of acres out in Center City, Minnesota, hundreds of acres. 
And I didn't go there intending to get sober. I went there to pacify other people who I thought were confused about my actual issues mm. and to accumulate some dough so I could come back and have some more fun. That was my <laughs> thought process. Little did I know. But once you get there, you know, the first day is miserable. You They wake you up every few hours to take your blood or whatever, just in case you're ODing or going into withdrawal. And then you go into a dorm. And my roommate, <laughs> my roommate was a guy named Dan. He was this skinny little guy from St. Louis, I think, with a mustache. His story, I'll never forget it. He had grown up in a, a very abusive home, uh, had run away as a young teenager, and were surviving on the streets. And he had met a con artist. And they made a great team, as he told me, right? Because here was this young, sort of innocent-looking white kid, and they taught him how to steal, almost like an Oliver Twist kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so everything was fine until his friend, Dan's friend, fell in love with a hooker. And they were going to get married or something, and the pimp came and killed his friend. <gasps> oh, wow. So street justice dictated that he go and kill the guy who killed his friend. So he did. <gasps> so... He was arrested and convicted of manslaughter, and he was sent to prison. And he told me, you know, I got to this prison, and here I am, a skinny little guy in a prison full of big, tough guys, right? And he says, and I come to find out that guys are getting raped, and I have no way of defending myself, so I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. So he says to me, so the first time a guy pats me on the ass in the shower, he said, I knew, I knew a place where they were doing some construction. I think it was said they were fixing a sink or something. So he says he led the guy over to that area, picked up a pipe, hit the guy in the head, bit his ear off, <gasps> chewed it up and swallowed it. Wow. So he says, so for three and a half years, nobody fucked with me again. And I was like, yeah, because you're Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> 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 this fucking guy's my roommate, right? And so I'm literally like sleeping with my hands over my ears, praying for him not to have a flashback. But he was a very nice, he was the type of person who gives you all of his attention. He had flown out to Minnesota on his own, just had heard about this place, was doing speed balls in the airplane. Showed up with a bunch of cash because he was in the crack business, but not enough. So they allowed him to go back. I can't believe they let him in, but they did. Long story short, he ended up getting kicked out. And, oh, why? Well, because he had to go back to New York to get the rest of the money, right? He didn't have credit or anything. Right. So he, he was allowed to fly back. No one's allowed to leave when you're there. But they gave special dispensation, provided he attended AA meetings in New York, and that he would stay sober and come back. And he did. But the problem is he was so excited to have survived the trip to New York that he got drunk on the plane. Oh. I still remember we greeted him when he showed up and he was reeking of alcohol. And so they kicked him out. And here's the coda to that story. So he and I were in touch a little bit after we left, but I lost track of him. And a couple of years later, I pick up the Daily News in New York and the cover story, the banner headline was New York's 101 Most Wanted Criminals. And there were five people whose pictures were on the cover and his was one of them. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? And it said, after a failed stint in rehab in May of 1987, I think it was, which was only a couple months after the rehab, Dan Liggett stabbed so-and-so to death on the Lower East Side in an argument over crack. Wow. And so he was wanted. I understand he's gone. I think he died. I don't know. But it gave veracity to his story. Hmm. That's for sure. I don't think he made that whole story up. God knows. I'll, I'll never forget it. There was some amazing characters in rehab, man. It was a guy named Fritz. If he was from Iceland, he would say, don't call me a smuggler. I'm a trafficker. 
Like, okay, I don't know the difference, but good Fritz. I have principles. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fritz, I'll never forget Fritz, because Fritz talked about how his resistance to dope, heroin, had gotten so high that he used to load up a needle with enough stuff to kill himself. And then he would call the hospital. And when he heard the ambulance coming, he jam it in his arm oh my god get completely fucked up they take him to the hospital he detox and come back and do it again <gasps> wow and fritz looked like exactly what you think fritz looked like by the way <laughs> he looked like a villain in a bond movie yeah <laughs> yeah so it was an amazing experience i learned so much there and aside from the funny stories i mean they do they perform miracles so what was it that worked for you like you came in there coming to appease other people i've got this crazy roommate when did it click? It clicked about day three or four. I still remember. They call it a pink cloud. What happened was, for me, I hadn't been sober for more than probably a day, not consecutive anyway, since I was 15. So after 11 years of being high every day, you know, after three or four days of being sober, I was like, oh my God, this is a different kind of high. This is amazing. You know, this is great. Like, hmm. I actually like life. Hmm. I can see how this could work. I've never heard anyone describe sobriety as a different kind of high. <laughs> That's how it felt. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. different. And when you've been so used to one thing, even though I had altered my consciousness every day for 11 years and really come very close to destroying my life in every way imaginable, it wasn't a good version of me. I needed help. I really needed help. And I was really lucky that somebody... And for anyone who's listening, who's in a position to, you know, have that impact on somebody else's life, who may be somebody that you love or somebody that works for you, uh, as my boss did, he had every reason to want to fire me. And he didn't. And he saved my life. So hmm. That's lovely. After rehab, I came out and had some hits. Uh, White Lion was the first one. And then Tori Amos and Collective Soul and then Stone Temple Pilots and so many um, wonderful artists that I signed Skid Row at that time. And ultimately, I was given the opportunity to run the A&R department. And we had more hits. We had Jewel and Hootie and the Blowfish. And it was just an amazing run that we had. And then they gave me the opportunity to start my own label. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think they were trying to move me out of the way because their perception was that music was changing and I wasn't the right guy for the new type of sound that was coming in. But I don't know. Hmm. So they set me up with a little label. They gave me a little budget, four employees, including myself, no artists. And I think I was set up to fail, but I named it Lava because Lava is hot <laughs> and it flows and it destroys everything in its path. And it sounds like love and it means clean in Spanish. And then Lava got hot. And that was, that was really one of the most fun times I've ever had. We just went on a crazy roll. From a standing start, which is around 96, uh, we sold almost 100 million records in about eight years. It was Sugar Ray and Matchbox 20 and Kid Rock and Simple Plan and Trans-Siberian Orchestra and The Coors, Uncle Cracker. And it was just such a fun time. I've always found that some of the biggest artists that I've ever discovered are the ones that were the hardest to break. And Kid Rock was one of them. So it's Trans-Siberian Orchestra. What do you mean hardest to break? Well, like when I say Kid Rock, that's a fun story. That fun story and more after these messages. So a guy who worked for me named Andy Carp. He came back from South by Southwest. 
And he's handed me a CD. He said, this manager gave me this CD, this guy Kid Rock. I think it's kind of interesting. I think I should go see him. I was like, all right, go see him. So he flew out to Cleveland to go see him. And he comes back and I said, how's the show? He goes, you know, I really don't know. He goes, there was only 40 people there, but he comes out of a coffin to start the show. And there's this little guy about three feet tall who's on stage cursing and rapping and stuff. And I was like, I got to see this for myself. So I went out to Detroit and I saw the show and there he had 1500 people and the show was absolutely fucking rock. It was a rock and rap circus. It was amazing. And I'll never forget. He said, meet me uh, 2.30 in the morning at the, in the basement of this disco across town because he had to pull down the whole stage himself. <laughs> he was doing everything himself back then. Oh, my gosh. But we had this crazy meeting under the fluorescent lights. And, and I said, uh, well, do you want to do rap or rock? He's like, don't worry, I'll show you. I go, okay. I go, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to record a couple songs. I said, okay, do you want me to pay for it? He goes, no, I got this. So he recorded two songs. And I remember I was in a rent-a-car on Hollywood Boulevard when I put the cassette in the dash and I just lost my mind. It was Somebody's Gotta Feel This and I Got One For You, both of which ended up on his seminal album, Devil Without a Cause. And then I Got One For You, he name-checks me. There's a line in the song where he says, Hey, Flom, you want to hit money? <laughs> I got one for you. That goes into the chorus. And I called him up and I said, I'll give you whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and then we made a deal over the phone. Amazing. And he honored that deal. Even now, then his manager went and started shopping the deal and bringing it to other labels. And other people started calling up and offering him better money and this and that. And he he, he would say to them, I, I don't need you now. I needed you then. I'm signing with Flom. Hmm. And he did. When his record came out, everybody was against him. Radio hated him. Press hated him. MTV hated him. Other artists thought he was a joke. It took a long time. But we eventually, we had the last laugh. Of course, that album had Ba with the Ba and Cowboy. And, and I'll tell you a little aside on Ba with the Ba. You know, when he, the original line in the chorus was, you can look for answers, but that ain't fun. Now get in the pit and try to kill someone. <laughs> ba with the Ba, the bang the dang, right? Uh-huh. I call him up and I go, Rock, you know what? It's an unbelievable song, but it's so incendiary. Like, I don't know, like, and I'm not a censor guy, but like, do you think maybe we should think about that lyric just in case somebody takes it too far? And, you know, he didn't say yes or no, but he went back and changed it. And as a result, it's actually, I think, a better lyric. Hmm. You can look for answers, but that ain't fun to get in a pit and try to love someone. Right. Hmm. We can go all night with Kid Rock stories. It was so much fun because he's such a gifted artist. I mean, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but hmm. he really is gifted. It's hard to imagine someone more politically opposite Jason than Kid Rock, who was a staunch Trump supporter. But Jason seems to cultivate friendships with people who you'd think he'd be at odds with, like Sean Parker, the billionaire co-founder of Napster, who went on to be the first president of Facebook and a lead investor in Spotify. I imagine as a record industry person, the guy who invented Napster is not exactly a friendly figure, right? The entire record industry went into a panic when oh, Napster came about, fair. right? Well. You know, I've thought about this a lot. For a long time, I would talk to anyone that I thought would listen to me about the idea that music should be a service, not a product. Mm. And I remember going to one of these conferences and seeing somebody with the name tag on and said he was the chairman, I think, of Verizon or something. And I remember just going up to him and introducing myself and saying, listen, why isn't music on your phone bill? Like, it should just be a service that everyone gets every month instead of a product. 
And Sean and I used to sort of strategize about this. We had numerous meetings where we would talk about it. I first met Sean when he was 25, and a friend of mine introduced us. And we had lunch at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. Sounds very bougie, (laughs) and it is. I'd asked the waiter, I guess, if there were any nuts in something, and he told me he was also allergic to nuts. And so I said to him, well, what do you carry with you as far as an antidote? He goes, nothing. (gasps) And I said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So when you leave here today, you're going to go directly to the drugstore. And I showed him the Benadryl strips that I used to carry. I don't think they make them anymore. Hmm. I said, you're going to get those today, and you're going to put them in your wallet and never leave home without them again. Several months later, he calls me from the hospital in San Francisco, and he says, you saved my life. And I was (gasps) like, what are you talking about? And he says, he left his home in San Francisco to drive to meet someone or whatever he was going to go do. And he was on one of the bridges and his, all of his body parts started swelling up. He had taken some aspirin without realizing he was also allergic to aspirin. He's allergic to a lot of things. Oh, wow. And he said it got so bad that he couldn't drive because he couldn't really see because his eyes were so swollen. And oh my gosh. so he stops on the bridge, calls his doctor and his doctor says, you're going into anaphylactic shock. You need to get to a hospital right away. And he goes, I'm on the bridge and I can't drive. I don't know what to do. He's calling an ambulance, whatever. He says, but you, you need Benadryl now. Oh, God. And he's like, wait a minute, I think I have some. So somehow or other, he fumbled around with his swollen hands and was able to open this little packet and took the Benadryl. And apparently, either in the ambulance or at the hospital, they told him that had he not had that, he would have been dead. Wow. Yeah, so that's a good way to start a relationship. So when I... <laughs> So when I got separated (laughs) several years after that, I ended up actually moving in with him for a little while because I didn't have an apartment. And that was pretty odd. He had a place in New York and Greenwich Village, and I moved in with him for a month. And we've stayed in touch over the years. He's quite a character. And it's funny, too. You'll appreciate this. At at one point, I was at his house, and I was like, Sean, remember uh, the time I saved your life? He goes, yeah. And I go... It's going to cost you a million dollars for the Innocence Project. (laughs) (laughs) And and he was like, okay. And I was like, okay. And and sure enough, he sent the check. And then years after that, I was in Washington, D.C., getting ready to enter the banquet hall where I was going to be honored at the Southern Center for Human Rights Gala. And the phone rings, and it's Sean. And I'm like, Sean, what's up? And he goes, I'm in Boston at a restaurant and Steven Tyler's here and I want to meet him. Can you introduce me? <laughs> and I was like, Sean, I'm about to walk into this thing and I'll do it, but it'll cost you another 250 <laughs> <laughs> So he's like, okay. I think I had him hand the phone to Steven and I explained to Steven who he was and they met and Sean sent another 250 So, you know. Wow. Yeah. That's sort of the relationship with Sean in a nutshell. He is one of the most enigmatic characters And I'll never forget, so this is probably eight years ago or something like that. And I get a text from Sean saying, I just started playing this new artist called Lord on my playlist, and you guys need to know about her. You need to go sign her. I texted back and said, thanks for the heads up. I'm having breakfast with her in New Zealand right now. (laughs) (laughs) One step ahead of you, Parker. (laughs) It was just a really funny thing. I mean, he he was early, but I was earlier. And I was just super lucky that someone, a woman named Natalia Robashevsky, had sent a link to her SoundCloud to me. Literally, she had 200 plays on SoundCloud at the time. Not 200,000, 200. So it was really brand new. Wow. And I was just very, very lucky that Natalia thought to send it to me and that I had thought to open the email. And the email, the subject line was hot shit. So that was a 
attention grabber, you know? Ah, okay. <laughs> Next time I email you, <laughs> it'll just be hot shit. I guess I'll be getting a bunch of emails from people with new music now and say hot shit. <laughs> I'll never forget. I have it framed in my apartment. The email just said, unsigned New Zealand female, listen. Mm. And it had the SoundCloud link. Hmm. I did. I listened and I called her up immediately and I said, what in the world did I just hear? Because that is the craziest. It was Royals. Mm. You didn't need to be a genius to hear that one. That's for sure. And by the way, it occurred to me one day after Royals had gone on to become this monster hit, it dawned on me. She had written the song, as many people know, after she saw a picture of George Brett in a Royals uniform, Hmm. which in itself is sort of odd because Baseball's not exactly a popular sport in New Zealand, but, you know, the internet and whatever. So she writes the song, and the Royals, who were the perennial last place team in baseball, went directly to the World Series. Hmm. So it's almost like the song turned a team of also-rans into world beaters. Like, just the energy coming off that record was so... They needed an anthem. I know. And I told that story before and had people calling me and saying, could she do one about the Mets? They suck, too. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Cool. Thank you so much for just taking the time to tell these stories to us. Can you just, for the sake of our listeners, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom, which is I-T-S, Jason Flom. And you can listen to me on the Wrongful Conviction podcasts. Um, It's Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I hope you'll get a chance to check it out. I'm really humbled and honored to be a part of this movement. And Amanda has been a guest on the show. In fact, on her episode, we have a segment at the very end of the show called Closing Arguments. It usually comes as a surprise to the guest. And I don't even know if you remember this, Amanda, but at the end of our interview, I just said, I'm just going to turn my mic off and leave it to you to close out the show with say whatever you want. Oh, God. (laughs) And she went on a little sort of two or three minute uh, rant that was, it was pure. (laughs) It's pure, Amanda, and it's pure, like, you know, hope you're sitting down while you're listening type of thing. So hope you get a chance to check it out. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Bye, you guys. (laughs) All right. Bye, Jason. Bye. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for this episode of Labyrinths. We've got more coming up. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us at knoxrobinson.com and on Instagram, at amamanox. At mccarbon. That's E-M-C-E-E carbon. Oh, and hey, what does the constellation Cassiopeia have to do with our podcast? I don't know what. Nothing, unless you give it five stars. (laughs) (laughs) This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo-Karp. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content. 
This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Knox Robinson.